Um, Veronica Black. Veronica is one of our very experienced work health and safety officers here at the association and has a great amount of knowledge around mental health and drug and alcohol work, um, especially around the safety issues. So please join me in welcoming Veronica. The first thing that I want us to have a quick look at before we really get into the detail of um, the content for today is um, this little slide, which is information that's put out every year by Safe Work Australia. And what it shows is serious injury rates by industry in Australia for the last 12 months. Is there anything that people notice about that slide that you think's interesting or relevant to you? Yeah. So, Health has the um, interesting distinction of um, having the largest number of serious injuries of any industry in Australia. And that's not new, it's been that way since about 2009 now. Um, so often when people think about high-risk industries, they think about construction or they think about road transport or manufacturing, but actually health has the largest number of serious injuries. And we're gonna have a look at some of the reasons why that might be, but also about some of the work that we need to do to start decreasing those injury rates, because a serious injury can take you out for good, and it has impacts beyond the workplace, of course. It also, you don't leave your injury at work, so it also has um, serious impacts for you at home as well. So in terms of key work health and safety issues and you know what it is that leads to the injuries within our industry, when you have a look at those stats and break them down a bit further, it's the physically demanding and repetitive tasks like patient handling, that's the largest single group of, um, of injuries relate to, to that nature of the work. Workplace violence and aggression, chemical and drug exposures, biological hazards, radiation and laser hazards, there's all sorts of things that, that apply in health settings. Um, the top three causes of injury are muscular stress, falls, and being assaulted. If you look at the death rates in the industry, thankfully quite low compared to some industries. However, 50% of deaths are motor vehicle accident, and the other 50% are related to workplace violence and being assaulted. So those are pretty scary statistics, I think, and important for us to be aware of um, and to think about when we're looking at how we address occupational violence within the sector. So we're gonna have a look now at some of the legal responsibilities around safety at work. And the first thing to be aware of is that you as workers have individual responsibilities under the Work Health and Safety Act. And these are, are useful things for you to know. So you must take reasonable care for your own health and safety. You must take reasonable care that your acts or omissions don't impact on the health and safety of other people. You need to comply as far as you are reasonably able with any reasonable instruction that's given by your employer um, for them to be able to comply with their responsibilities under the Act. And similarly, you need to cooperate with any reasonable policy or procedure that relates to health and safety in the workplace as well. It's important to be aware that there are duties of workers under the Act. There are ways that you can use these to your benefit, but there have also been a number of prosecutions under the Work Health and Safety Act of workers for failing to meet their obligations. So 
prosecutions are reasonably limited, unfortunately, um, and I find it disturbing that the proportion of them that are prosecutions of workers as opposed to employers. Anyway, we'll look a bit more at some of that and what that might mean later on as well. In terms of your employer's responsibility, there's... In the past, work health and safety legislation has been a lot more prescriptive, so it's had detail about, you know, you can't lift more than this weight or you can't, you know, it can't be more than that temperature. That's not the way that health and safety law is structured these days, um, not in Australia and not in most places around the world. What they've moved to are these very broad general duties. And so essentially, your employer has to ensure, so far as reasonably practicable, the health and safety of workers. So, yeah, so we'll have a look at that. So um, previously, the Work Health and Safety Law has talked about employer, and now they use this term PCBU, which is person conducting a business or undertaking. It's a bit of a confusing term because it sounds like you're talking about a person, like a human person, and it's not talking about a human person. The person conducting a business or undertaking is... Um, it's using like a definition of legal personhood. It's the corporation, it's the employing entity. Um, it's broader than just an employer because they have um, responsibilities for PCBUs who are designers of equipment, who are installers of equipment. So they've kind of uh, increased the range of people who might have responsibilities from a direct employer to a range of others as well. But for your purposes, uh, the term PCBU will almost always refer to your direct employer. Um, or if you're an agency staff member, it could be your direct employer plus the place that you have been placed to do that work. Um, they also... And, and any idea who we're talking about when we say workers? Yep, so again, this is another area that the law has changed. So it used to be just employees, and now it's much broader than that again. So it's employees, it's contractors, it's students, it's volunteers. So it might be a range of different people who are undertaking work within the workplace, but they might not be a direct employee. So the second part in their primary duty of care is they also have to ensure the health and safety of others. So others would include people like visitors, patients, um, people like Katrina who work for the union that might be coming into the workplace, anyone else who's coming into the workplace who's not an employee under the, under the Act. Does that make sense so far? So when we're talking about um, what your employer needs to do, we need to be able to demonstrate that the way that things are operating is not safe and that there is something that they could do that's reasonably practicable to make it more safe. So you're not going to find something that says this many staff or, you know, this is the weight limit that you're restricted to, but we need to be able to provide those kinds of arguments. And so it also talks about when you're looking at ensuring a safe workplace, that includes a safe work environment, so the sort of physical environment that you're working in, Safe systems of work. What do we mean by that? Not not the equipment this time. It could be about policies and procedures. It could be rostering and staffing numbers. Um, yeah, you, how you go about undertaking particular tasks, safe work method statements, all of those kinds of things would fit into safe systems of work. Levels of supervision, all of that kind of stuff. 
Then you've got safe plant structures and substances, so that's, that is things like the equipment that you might be using, um, the chemicals that you might be using, and so on. Um, welfare facilities, this is talking about facilities for your comfort at work, so it's things like your lunchrooms, your toilets, um, first aid arrangements that might be in place for you as workers. Um, they also must provide information, training and instruction. And so that might be about how to do your job safely. Um, it also might be about internal processes for raising safety issues and concerns. Uh, and the final thing is that they need to be monitoring safety in the workplace. And so that um, would be things like recording accurately incidents that might be occurring, having regular... Um, safety audits in the workplace, uh, reviewing data that's, that they have access to to see whether there are particular trends going on and that kind of thing. So those are some of the things that they have to do. So when ensuring health and safety, they have to make sure that they eliminate risks to your health and safety. And if, if it's not possible to eliminate the risks, that they minimise the risks to your health and safety so far as is reasonably practicable. So if we use for an example um, the risk of being exposed to violence in a um, methadone clinic as, a, as an example, they may not be able to completely eliminate violence in that clinic because um, people behave in a range of ways and it's not entirely predictable. And so eliminating the violence entirely might not be something that it is reasonably practicable for them to do without just saying no one's coming into the clinic. However, there are a wide range of ways that the risk to you of being exposed to violence can be minimised. So things like um, having secure barriers on the counters, making sure that you've got enough staff on, making sure that you're able to um, remotely lock the doors of the facility, making sure you've got secure, safe areas to retreat, would all be examples of things that could be done, reasonably be done, to minimise the risk to your health and safety in that situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, and we'll have a look at where some of these things fit, because there's a bit of a priority order. And this is another area that's not always well followed. Um, but we'll have a look at that in a moment too. So you might have seen that term reasonably practicable. And it's used fairly extensively throughout the legislation. And it kind of sounds a bit like weasel words, you know. Who decides what's reasonably practicable? Is it what the employer says is reasonably practicable? Is there some other way that that's determined? And it is actually legally defined. So um, it's not as easy to wiggle out of. So when you look at what's reasonably practicable, they need to consider what is the likelihood that somebody will be injured if we don't do something about this particular issue. Um, they need to look at how serious could that injury be. So if it's something that might be uh, you know, a, a paper cut, then obviously the, the seriousness, the consequence there is less than a skull fracture. So when you're looking at how you prioritise work in safety, then you need to prioritise things that are likely to occur and that are serious ahead of some of the other issues. Then they need to look at what is the availability or suitability of controls. So with that example that I was using earlier, we know that in, um, in opioid clinics that, that it is 
that there are barriers that they use on counters, that there are um, there is equipment that you can buy so that you can remotely lock doors, that it is possible to design facilities so that people are able to access safe havens. So you have to look at... You can't um, expect that they will implement something that doesn't exist, yeah? But if there are things that exist that we know work, then those are the things that should be implementing. And then they look at what the employer ought to know. So not what they do know, um, but what they ought to know. And so as an employer, they have a responsibility to have an understanding about the nature of risks in their industry and how those can be controlled. This is another reason why it's really important that you raise things that you're concerned about and that we raise things on your behalf, because it's very difficult for them to say, well, I didn't know about that, if it's been formally brought to their attention. So important to be raising these matters. So um, that's how you determine what's reasonably practicable. So going back to risks, so you've identified something in the workplace. There's a process for how these things need to be managed. So there's a couple of key steps in a risk management process. And the first is around identifying hazards. The second is around assessing risk related to those hazards controlling the risks and then reviewing the control measures that are in place. And I don't know how well you can read it, but all the way around the side of that in that light blue circle um, is the word consultation. So whenever they're going through this process with any of the identified risks, they should be talking to you as the workers about what are the hazards in this workplace? How do we assess the risks that relate to those hazards? what should be or could be the controls, and how well are they working? And you should have direct involvement in that. Why do you think that consultation with workers is important? And I'm amazed at the times that I hear from employers things like, well, we bought them no ju new duress alarms and no one's using them. And you say, well, have you asked them why they're not using them? Did you consult with them about what the alarms might look like, for example? And that's when you find out that um, none of them are operational, none of them work, the batteries don't hold a charge, or um, they don't, um, there's black spots within the facilities and uh, the alarms don't work in those particular areas. Or if you're looking at manual handling equipment, you know, they might have bought new lifters new, for bariatric patients, the lifters don't fit into the bathroom. So if they don't talk to the people who are doing the work, then they don't necessarily understand the nature of the hazards and they don't necessarily understand what kinds of controls are appropriate. So you can have someone who's work health and safety trained and has all the expertise and knowledge in the world. They still don't understand your job as well as you understand your job. And it's really important that you're involved in each of those stages. So to have a quick look at those stages, so hazards can be identified in a heap of different ways. It could be just that you know, people are walking around and that they notice that something's a problem. It could be formal workplace inspections, consulting with their workers, talking to you, and then reviewing available information, which might be things like IMS if you're in New South Wales Health or Riskman or whatever the system is that your employer uses if you're working elsewhere. They will all have a system for reporting of incidents um, but, and... So they can use that kind of data. They could look at complaints that have been made. They could look at workers' comp data to see, you know, how many staff have they had off, what are the kinds of injuries that they've had. And so there's a range of ways that they can identify those hazards. Once they've been identified... Oh, and if we're looking at why we need to report the, the hazards that you see, or near misses, so it doesn't need to have been something that has already led to an injury, 
It can assist in identifying hazards so that you can make improvements to safety. And when we looked before at what your employer ought reasonably to know, it ensures that they actually do know that there's a problem. That information can be accessed by other people other than your employer. So if you only say something to your supervisor, they may be the only person who ever hears about it. If you only put something in um, patient notes, only you and other people who are providing care for that patient are going to see that. Whereas um, if you put it into your work health and safety incident reporting system, then other people are going to see it. So generally, a work health and safety person for the organisation will also see it um, and start to wonder why there's a, an increase in issues in a particular area within the facility um, or within the organisation. But it can also be accessed by other people. So Safe Work New South Wales is now the name of what used to be work cover for people who um, might not have touched on work health and safety for a little while. If they come in and do an investigation, they can access that information. Similarly, if I come in to do an investigation following an incident, I can access that information. I can't access stuff that's just in your patient notes. I can access the information that's in um, IMS or RiskMan or whatever your particular incident management system is. So it's, it's very important, because if I'm hearing from members, for example, um, that violence is a massive problem in, a, in a, a particular aged care facility, and I go in to do an investigation, and I pull that data from the employer, and there's nothing recorded, it makes it really difficult for me to argue that there needs to be some substantial changes to how they're managing violence, because you go back to that likelihood of incidents occurring, and they say, well, this has never been a problem in this facility. I don't know what you're talking about. So if it's not recorded, it didn't happen, really important that you record it. Um, also, if you're working for New South Wales Health, you've got an incident management policy which very clearly says that staff members are required to notify all identified incidents, near misses and complaints in the incident management system. And if you remember, right back at the start when we were talking about your legal obligations, your legal obligations under the Work Health and Safety Act include that you must follow all policies and procedures relating to safety in your workplace. So you've got a legal responsibility, you've got a New South Wales health policy responsibility to report all incidents and near misses. And uh, in addition to that, you've also got professional obligations for RNs and ENs to report safety matters that come up both in your standards of practice and code of conduct. And you've got a, a copy of some information. It's not the full um, standards of practice and code of conduct, but it does include a number of those safety concerns in the booklet that's been handed out among your handouts today. So really important to report things. And we see underreporting. Why, why don't people report? Yeah. So the most common things that we hear are um, that there's not enough time or they don't know how to. In some smaller places, people don't necessarily have access. It's got to be reported by a supervisor. And fear. Yeah, or feel like it's not going to make any difference. So why... Yeah. And look, I've worked in safety across a number of different industries, and one of the things that I've really noticed about health is that there is a massive culture of blame on individuals when there are incidents. 
And so in other industries, you'll hear them talking about um, a no-blame culture around safety. So when there's an incident and that incident is reviewed, what people are looking for is systems issues that led to that particular problem occurring, as opposed to a person that they can point at to apportion blame. And what I see quite often in health is that, um, that it's used as a finger-pointing exercise. You know, if you had been a better nurse and had been able to de-escalate that situation more effectively, then that wouldn't have occurred, for example. And that's really highly inappropriate um, because investigation of incidents should be looking at what are the underlying causes that enabled this to happen, um, not at blaming individual people. And there's often underlying things like if you've just worked a double shift, um, then you might not be as on the ball as what you might be if you were working reasonable hours. And, um, and maybe you haven't de-escalated something as effectively as you might when you're feeling fresher, for example. And so there what you're looking at is underlying problems around the level of staffing in the workplace and the ability to do your job in a reasonable way, not looking at, well, why didn't you do X, Y and Z? So can we move on from reporting incidents? We all know that it's important. You all know that you've got a legal obligation to do it. You all know that it's going to be helpful in terms of if you need someone to come in and review stuff in the workplace because it's not getting fixed. Excellent. Yeah. So once, um, once an employer is aware that there is a hazard, they need to assess the risk related to the hazard. Now, people often use the words hazard and risk interchangeably, but in safety, they've got different meanings. So um, a hazard is the thing with the potential to cause harm and the risk is the consequences, so how serious the event could be, and the likelihood. So it's taking those two things into account. Um, so if we think about the hazard as being a shark in a swimming pool and the risks increase um, if you hop into the pool, if the shark's really hungry, if there's blood in the water. You know, there's a range of things that are going to increase the risk, um, the, the type of shark that's in the water, you know. So hazard and risk, two different things. So first step is identifying the hazard. Second step is looking at what are the risks that are associated with that hazard. What are the consequences and what is the likelihood that someone will be injured. Now I saw a risk assessment that had been completed by one of the LHDs recently where they had um, they had used a, the employer, the manager, had used a um, general risk assessment form, not a work health and safety risk assessment form. Now it sounds like I'm being a pedant, but there's a big difference because a work health and safety risk assessment should only look at the likelihood and the consequences, and then that's how it determines how serious it is and what kind of action needs to be taken. Whereas these other generic risk assessment forms are looking at things like um, what are the community expectations, what might it cost the organisation, what sort of impact might it have on staff participation in the future. It uses all these other things that are not directly relevant to work health and safety and could result in it coming in at a lower risk than what it actually actually is because there are irrelevant matters being taken into account when deciding the risk. So if you are involved in risk assessment processes, make sure that whatever is being used, whatever template, whatever document is just looking at the likelihood and the consequences as the two factors. So your risk assessment helps you to work out how severe the risk is, whether existing control measures that you've got in place are effective. 
um, what other action you can take to control the risk and how urgently it needs to be taken. So one of the actions that you can undertake as, as an individual nurse or through your branch is to request that risk assessments be conducted into things that are of concern to you in the workplace um, and to ask for that to be done in full consultation with affected nurses, which is what the law says anyway, but it's not a bad idea to remind your employer of that at the time. So um, you could look at risk assessments in relation to an individual patient. You could look at risk assessments for processes. So I was talking to some community mental health nurses who do call-outs at night, and so um, they were wanting to have a look at um, the, the process that occurs when they're called out being, looked, um, being examined from the time that they leave home till the time that they get home to identify what are the various hazards on the, on the way. Um, you know, from getting to their car to getting to the workplace to walking through a deserted, unlit car park to find the, um, the work vehicle to getting to an unfamiliar environment and going into the home of somebody that they don't know who hasn't been previously assessed by anybody. You know, there's a whole lot of different risks that people were concerned about in relation to their work that had never been properly examined, assessed or controlled. So that's, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. So you can always ask for those risk assessments. You should be involved in that process and you can get assistance from the association if you need help in your input into that risk assessment process. Once the risks have been assessed, they need to be controlled. And when you're looking at this, um, there's a whole lot of different ways that you can control, uh, control risks. And often there need to be more than one control put in place in order for it to be um, a comprehensive response that's going to significantly reduce the risk to the people who are working in the area. What we often see is um, the controls that are um, cheapest and simplest but least effective are the ones that are put in place. So for example, um, I had a, a nurse in an aged care facility who'd injured their... Oh, there were a couple of people who'd injured themselves as they had been pushing various kinds of equipment. Um, so there were, there were issues in this workplace with laundry trolleys, meal trolleys, wheelchairs, beds. Um, and the employer's response had been to put out a memo to staff suggesting that they remember to brace their core when they were about to push any of these pieces of equipment. What they didn't look at is, are the casters appropriate for the floor type in this workplace? And if not, can we replace them so that it is easier to push this device? Or we've got a laundry trolley that we're pushing up a very steep driveway. Do we need to, in fact, get a mechanical device that will push the trolley up there or get the contractors to pick it up from the bottom of the driveway? What else can we do that's going to make this safer rather than just remind people, put out a memo suggesting that they brace their core? Um, so if we're looking at when risks are controlled, there, there is actually a legal um, set of steps that need to be taken into account. So they need to eliminate the risk if they can. Um, 
and that's preferable because nobody's being exposed then. So if there's a way to eliminate the particular risk, great, that's the option that should be taken. If you can't eliminate it, there's a couple of different options. So you can substitute something that is hazardous for something that is less hazardous. You can isolate the particular risk or you can um, so substitute, isolate, engineering controls, which is using uh, like equipment or other things that might assist in, in that particular matter. So if we were going back to our... Um, oh, and then after that, you can look at um, further reducing things by administrative controls. These are things like training, um, supervision, safe work method statements, yeah? And then the last one is using personal protective equipment. And if you have a look there, it'll talk about which things are the most effective, those high-order controls, and which things are the least effective. Why do you think that um, policies and training are down the list compared to physical changes in the workplace? Yeah. So if we go back to that example that I was talking about before, so we're talking about a methadone clinic and we're talking about risk of um, exposure to violence. So if we go through that list of controls, can we eliminate that risk? Well, not really, like people are still going to be coming in and we're not sure, um, you know, we know that, that that particular patient group is a high-risk group in terms of chances of um, violent or aggressive behaviour. Can we substitute the risk? Well, we can't just swap them out for patients that we like more or who are less likely to be violent, so that's not going to be an option. Can we isolate and what does that look like? So we can, so that's things like having screens on the counters. That's things like having um, remote access, only letting a certain number of people through at the same time, having areas that you can get to that are safe areas in the, in the event of an incident. So that would all fit into that isolation category here. Um, engineering controls are going to be less relevant here, but, but are definitely relevant to things like um, manual handling issues. So uh, lifting equipment, for example, um, would be an example of an engineering control. Um, after that, we've got looking at administrative controls. So what are the processes? How many people are allowed in at a time? How many staff do we have on? What kind of training do those staff get? But you don't go to that first. You go to the, can we do something in the workplace, some kind of a structural change that is going to make it safer? Um, and personal protective equipment, in this example, might be something like a duress alarm. Now, why would a duress alarm be lower down on the list? Yeah, so a duress is, for you to be using a duress alarm, generally something's already happened or is right about to happen. It's not going to prevent the thing from occurring. It will hopefully uh, reduce the consequences and the, the severity of the incident, um, but it, it is much lower down on the pecking order. And so when you get um, conversations that are an either or about, you know, do you have barriers on the counter or a duress alarm? No, they're for different purposes and they do different things. And so you have both of those things in place. Um, but keeping in mind there is a legal framework for how risks are controlled and going for memo to all staff or training as the only options is not sufficient. They are important things, but they can't just be used on their own for most, most serious risks. Once you've um, controlled the risks, you need to make sure that those controls work. 
because it's all very well and good putting something in place and then, and then six months down the track or a year down the track finding out that it hasn't been effective, it doesn't control the risk. And so this might be like the example I was talking about before where you've bought new manual handling equipment, it hasn't controlled the risk because people aren't using it because it doesn't fit through the doorways, as an example. So if you're not um, monitoring and reviewing what you've put in place, you don't know how effective it is. Again, workers should be involved in the, that review. Um, and there's a range of times that those controls should be reviewed. So in terms of, it's, it's all well and good to have those kinds of processes in place and that's great. Um, sometimes you've gone through, you've put in your IMS, um, you've asked for some consultation, you might have had a disagreement about what appropriate controls might look like or you don't think that the matter's being addressed, which someone talked about earlier. There's processes for escalating work health and safety issues. And so the first step is to raise the matter, when there's any work health and safety thing that you've noticed, is to raise it through the normal channels. So if it's a, if it's a maintenance related issue and you've got a maintenance log, raise it that way. Um, but if you have raised the issue and it hasn't been addressed, then it becomes, then it becomes what they call an issue in work health and safety language. So when you first noticed it, it's a thing to be resolved, but it's not necessarily an issue. But all of a sudden now it's an issue because you've raised it and nothing's happened. And every workplace needs to have an agreed work health and safety issue resolution process. Um, in the handouts, I've put down, uh, there's a double-sided sheet at some point, and on one side of it, it um, has the um, information for New South Wales Health, and on the other, it has the default procedure that's in the work health and safety regulations. So what the work health and safety law says is you need to have a process for sorting out work health and safety issues, and if you don't, then you should use the default procedure that's in the regulations. Um, Basically, you don't want something that's like a really long, convoluted process with 50,000 steps because you want to get things sorted. And so it shouldn't be a long process. It shouldn't involve you having to go through a work health and safety committee that might only meet once a quarter um, because you don't want to wait for three months to have anyone look at that issue. So work health and safety committees are important, but not for resolving issues. They should be looking at policies and procedures and other things, but not for resolving we've got a, a hazard that people are being exposed to right now. Um, but there will be a process and you can raise things either individually or through your branch um, through that particular process. You might go through that process and find that the matter is still not resolved. Uh, and then you've got a number of different options that really boil down to you could contact the association for some assistance with progressing it or you could contact Safe Work New South Wales who is the regulator and ask for an inspector to come and review that particular issue. So the key things with issue resolution is to try to resolve the issues in the workplace as far as possible rather than having them go externally. You can involve a union official there are those default procedures in the regulations if you don't have your own. And if it's not resolved, it can be referred to the regulator. And if you're not happy with the regulator's response, because they don't always have a very good understanding about health workplaces in my experience, you get some excellent ones and you get some maybe not quite as excellent ones, you can ask for a review of an inspector's decision as well. But you'd probably want some assistance with that. Welcome to contact us and we can help you through that process. What about if something's a serious and imminent risk, though? We've had all of these very long processes in place. What if you're faced with something right now? Um, 
So, for example, um, you have had a patient who has previously been incredibly violent, who has been transferred out of your facility somewhere else, and you hear that they are being transferred back. Nothing's changed in the workplace that would allow you to manage that person um, any differently than what had been in place before, and people are feeling quite concerned about the uh, return of this particular patient. That might be an example of a serious and imminent risk to people's safety. So under work health and safety law, you have the right to cease or refuse to carry out work if you have a reasonable concern that to carry out the work would expose you to a serious risk to your health or safety, emanating from an immediate or imminent exposure to a hazard. So this is not strike action, it's a different thing. Um, you need to remain available to undertake other duties, but you can certainly refuse to do things that are um, an immediate threat, serious threat to your safety. And, and we've used um, this, a lot of members have used this particular provision of the Act, um, and we have had some good successes in things like people not being returned to a facility until there are certain... Um, renovations, uh, uh, changes to the physical environment before um, it's made suitable to be able to safely accommodate that person. Um, staffing numbers is another one, or skills mix of the people who are going to be on at the time that that person is accommodated in the facility. So there's a wide range of options. Often it's not that nurses have actually taken the cease work. Often it is a... Um, reminding their employer that they have the option to cease work and that if this thing is to occur, um, this, is what, this is the action that we will take. So you know that the person's about to come back, you know that you, you're not able to manage them, there's been multiple assaults in your facility by this person in the past, they're not doing anything different, just saying, well, this other place is sick of them now, so they're coming back to you, and we see a little bit of, a little bit of that. Um, if that's not being managed, if controls aren't being put in place saying we're not going to provide care for that person because this is going to constitute a serious and imminent risk to our safety unless you do the following things. Um, doesn't happen a lot, is happening more frequently than it has in the past and has been getting some um, sensible changes made in those workplaces to ensure that nurses are safe. Your employer must consult with you about work health and safety matters, and I'm going to start skipping through a bit quicker now, I'm afraid, because um, I started late and so now we're finishing late. Um, so your employer must talk to you about health and safety concerns that affect you in the workplace. Um, and they have to consult at a whole range of times. One of the key ones that I think we don't use as often as we could is the one about proposing changes that may affect the health or safety of workers. So roster reviews that are seeing decreases in staffing levels, that would be a change that could affect your health and safety at work and it is something that would require proper consultation under the Work Health and Safety Act and that might include you asking for a comprehensive risk assessment to be undertaken. Um, it's a good way to push back against changes that make the workplace less safe. All of this is quite hard to do as an individual. Uh, there are options for different structures to support you when it comes to health and safety. And the two key structures in the Act are health and safety reps and health and safety committees. 
In health, we almost always just see health and safety committees. There are a limited number of health and safety reps. If you have a look at those two columns in terms of what they do, anyone has it a guess why employers like health and safety committees more? Why do employers prefer committees over health and safety reps? Because um, they don't actually, the committees don't actually agitate the, um, the risks and the hazards. In, and, and what they do is they try to um, implement, well, they don't even actually implement it. They just commit themselves to policies and protocols and procedures and business rules without actually implementing them. So that's my answer. The key thing is that health and safety committee members have no real powers. They have a power to have time off to get together to talk about health and safety issues as regularly as has been agreed, might be four times a year, whereas the health and safety rep has a very long list of um, powers under the Act, including being able to issue provisional improvement notices that give an employer a fixed time to resolve a particular issue um, and directing people to cease work. Health and safety reps are entitled to training, five days of work health and safety training. Health and safety committee members are entitled to no training. So in terms of your capacity to be effective in real change, being a health and safety rep where you get trained and have powers is going to do you a lot better than being a health and safety committee member where you don't. Um, who gets to decide what structure you have? Actually, you do. So the way that the law is um, set out is that if any one person in a workplace decides that they want to have health and safety reps, they can make a formal request and the employer must have health and safety reps. Um, and I've given you a handout about that as well that has some basic information about HSRs on one side and on the other side an example of a form letter that you might use to put in a request. Um, again, talk to your organiser or contact the association and ask for one of the Work Health and Safety Officers and we can help you to do that. And I think that will have to do so that you get time to eat. Uh, does anyone have any questions? No. I must have done an excellent job of explaining everything. Everything. <laughs> Thanks.